the prayer. In the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So I know that people will always come late, so uh, welcome to our second class on Jesus Christ. Before we begin, I think I remember all the announcements I'm supposed to make. We are really kind of moving towards um, the beginning of Advent, and that's when, as we talked about in the first day, the inquiry phrase will sort of stop, and we'll move in with the right of election for those who are ready to and willing to become Catholic, become baptized, this whole RCIA process. So we have a number of people that uh, have signed up. We're, I think we have 10, don't we, Katie? Uh, 10. So it's important if you are someone who's going through the process, uh, wanting to become an RCA, that there's a sign-in sheet that you sign in so that we know that you're here, and then come to the meeting afterwards. Um, and so if you're not an RCA, then you don't need to worry about signing up. We're glad that you're here. Um, that's the first announcement. Second, <coughs> uh, a little glitch on my error part, um, all the Credo Talks are up now, uh, along with the links and everything. I hadn't put the proper tag, so it wasn't coming up. So if you go to ourladyofwisdom.org slash Credo, you'll see a post for each of the lessons with a handful of links, along with some videos, <coughs> and the audio of each of these talks, so you can access that there. Um, but I think everything is going well, um, and I pre particularly appreciate those who are not uh, in the RSA process but are faithful to coming, uh, who give such great support, whether you know it or not, to those individuals who have begun the RSA process. So last week, the first part of Jesus Christ, we focus really on the Jesus of the Gospels. The truth is, the Gospels, the Scripture, where we as Catholics really come to know the person of Jesus. We sort of reflect on the origin of the Gospels and what the Gospels presented to us about Jesus. Of course, you need to read the Gospels to really learn, but you understood where the Gospels came from. Today, we're going to do probably for the first time real theology. Theology is the study of God, and in a certain sense, yeah, we've done that already, but we're going to look at Christology. Christology is a branch of, of Christian theology where we look at and try to understand who Jesus Christ was as a person. And so I'm going to do my best to take 2,000 years of theology and compress it into about an hour and 20 minutes. And what we're going to do is focus on the person of Christ, who he was, both human and divine, and we're also going to focus on his mission, why he came into the world, what is his purpose. And so we're going to draw from a lot of the early teachings of the church. And this is something that I know I've talked about, and I'm going to talk about again over the course of the, of the time we're here. So often, we'll hear people ask questions or talk about Jesus or other parts of theology or the Trinity. 
A lot of times it's uh, people who are not Catholic and they're confused about certain issues. They don't understand it. Or maybe they think they understand it, but they have kind of a, ooh, a little crazy position. The truth is, most of these issues that we face today were solved centuries ago. Centuries ago by the early church. In particular, why what we call the ecumenical councils. The ecumenical council is when all the bishops of the world come together and they pray about, they talk about, sometimes they beat each other up. In the early part of the church they did that. To resolve issues, the problems in the church, different heresies from the positive side to help clarify our beliefs. Because we talked about the importance of theology and philosophy. There were all these terms like the Son of God, divine nature. What do those things mean? And so it was the first centuries of the church, particularly the first seven ecumenical councils, that helped to elucidate that. And we believe this is divinely inspired and fallible teaching. And so a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is drawing from Scripture, but also from these first seven ecumenical councils. Fortunately, I have a little PDF that I got. I'm going to put it online. You can read it, a very brief summary of these councils and the things we taught to know that I'm teaching you today. I just didn't come up with over, over lunch because the truth is I didn't have time to really prepare this class. So it's going to be spirit-filled. see if I can give you the content that is necessary. But first, we want to do, and I guess I could have done this last week, we want to focus on the name Jesus Christ. What this tells us. Jesus, the Hebrew or Aramaic term, means God or Yahweh saves. Now, we talked a little bit about this last time, that Christ came as the Savior, but not to save Israel from the oppressing Romans, but to save humankind from sin. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. It's something we really haven't discussed too, too much, even though I know Heather did. The reality of sin in the world and what sin is and how it breaks up relationships. And so Jesus came, God comes to save us from sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he comes to preach the good news. And again, the gospel means the good news. Well, if we're going to believe the good news, which is of Christ's resurrection, you've got to know there's bad news. And we forget that. Good news. Well, the bad news is sin exists, it destroys relationships, alienates us from God, and if you're not careful, it ends you up in a very, very hot place. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ came to save us from that. We, through his, his, his passion, death, and resurrection, our baptism, our belief in him, we are saved from sin. He conquered sin and he conquered death. Again, all of this sort of ties back to something we really haven't gotten into that much, and that is the concept of original sin. That's a trouble and a problem there. Well, if we realize that Adam and Eve did not exist in the same way 
that we believe that scripture talks about, even though there would have been a first man and first woman, where does original sin come in? And that's a difficult question. But we can definitely say that sin exists in the world. If you don't think that's a reality, well, you got, you got a problem. Number two, we know that death exists in the world. Not only physical death, but also the possibility of spiritual death. The other thing is, we know that there was this guy named Jesus Christ who came and said he came to save us from sin, died this horrible death, and rose from the dead. So even though we may not exactly understand how sin and death got into the world because we weren't there, we know that he came to fix something. And so I can conjecture of what the original sin was. Maybe, you know, the first man and woman had evolved to a certain point, God infused the soul, and that first moral choice they made. Maybe that's what brought sin into the world, because they would have been morally culpable, and therefore the loss of grace. But if you read that book that we talked about, Ratzinger's, in the beginning, when he gets to original sin, it's funny. He doesn't talk so much about the historical, supposed historical event. He says what original sin is, is broken relationship. With God, which means the loss of grace, we're going to talk about that, grace being the ultimately the life of God in our souls, the life of God, the Trinity dwelling within us, and relationship with other people. So Jesus came to restore this relationship, in a great sense, these relationships. And so the power of the name of Jesus, not just that's what we say, we do not take the Lord's name in vain. There's a holiness to that name, which means God saves. And again, it's powerful. We forget that because we use it so often. If you know anything about exorcisms, it is the name of Jesus. The power of Christ that compels that demon out. So there's a power, that holiness, that sacredness of the name. Again, it ties back to what we talked about. Our world does not believe in the possibility of the reality of the sacred. Second is the word Christ. We've already talked about um, what Jesus is, Christ is Messiah. In the Hebrew language world, it means someone who is anointed, anointed with oil, a king or a priest, who is consecrated, which means they are set apart for everyone else. And so he came as the Messiah, the Savior. And the scriptures pointed towards him. All of history and Jewish history pointed towards this one person who came to do what? To save us from sin. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name. You look in the telephone book. Some of you are young enough not even to know what a telephone book is. And you look up look for Jesus' name, you're not going to look up the surname Christ. All right? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. And the other very powerful title we see in Scripture, He is Lord. So we normally say, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means it's a divine title in Scripture. The apostles called Jesus Lord. You are the Lord. You are ruler. You are king. You have dominion over the world. You're in the line of David the king from the Old Testament where we studied salvation history. So that's the name of Jesus. So just the name of Jesus teaches a lot about 
who he is as a person, God made man, and what his mission is, salvation. Those two words right there, his person and his mission. But what we want to do is we want to look at the catechism, or at least what the creed gives us, you know, the creed that we recite uh, at every Mass. It tells us when we recite what we believe in, we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. All right? <clears throat> in Christology, basically everything comes down to these four words. Jesus is true God and true man. And that was what the early church struggled with, the heresies. The heresy was either, eh, he's only kind of God, or he's only partial God, or he's only partial man. Or he looks like a man, but he's not really a man. Or he's a man, but he doesn't, he's, he doesn't have the same will, ability to choose. And we're going to get into that. So everything basically comes down to this. So if we're going to understand who the person of Christ is, we have to analyze both of these phrases. Now, when we talk about Jesus as true God, a lot of this is going to be made clearer in the next talk when we talk about the Trinity. When Christ comes to reveal God as Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to understand that in the great mystery. But there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus is the Son made man. So we're going to talk about here, even since a certain sense, before what we call the Incarnation. Son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And again, we're going to talk a little bit about this now, and even more about it next week. There's one God who shares what we call the divine nature, essence, but yet there are three persons, individual hypostases, as we'll talk about, persons, that has a meaning to it, of that one God. All equal, but all different. Jesus is the second person, well, the Father is the first, and the Spirit is the third person. And the Son of God is divine. He's fully God because he shares the same nature as the Father. But for all, and he's eternal. But we use the term that he was begotten by the Father. Or we would say that he was generated by the Father. Not in some weird pagan sexual ritual, not at all. God, but from all eternity, and that's the great mystery, he was begotten, not made. There was never a point where the Son didn't exist. But son ultimately means that he is of the same stuff, or what we call in theology, the same substance as the Father. This all, in a certain sense, presumes we have a lot more lessons in philosophy, but we don't. Substance basically means stuff, the same stuff of the Father. The, 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 the Greek word that was sort of coined as homoousios. Homo, the same, ousios, substance. So the Son, even though he's different, is equal to the Father, but from all eternity is generated from the Father. 
completely true God. Again, this is going to make a lot more sense next week. But what we believe happened as Christians, at that very specific time, the fullness of time, from a plan in the mind of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, from all eternity, decided to become man, to become human. This is what we call the incarnation. The root word from the Latin carne, which means flesh. So you know, hey, it's Mardi Gras, it's carnival time. Carnivale, goodbye to the flesh. We're not gonna eat meat anymore. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna boil some crawfish on Good Friday, and that's okay. We'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> But I, I don't want to jump too far ahead when it comes to the Trinity. We're going to talk about that next week. When we pass to the Incarnation. When God, without giving up anything, the second person of the Trinity became man. We already talked about Jesus as the Logos. Uh, the second person of the Trinity is the Logos. Christ is the Logos the need for ration, ardor uh, in the world. And so the Gospel of John begins by saying, the Word became flesh. Something purely spiritual and eternal became flesh, became man. Why? To a certain extent, so that the invisible could be revealed in the visible, also to show the dignity of the human body and the human person in order to teach us, in order to show us love. But ultimately, God became man so that he could die. That's what we're going to talk about later. It's a mystery we can't understand, but his mission was to come so that he could die in order to conquer sin and death. And so in the incarnations, we talked about Jesus, you know, as a child, and he grew up, and he became a man. We have what we call two natures. Now, natures does not mean tree and plants and birds and all that stuff. We are going to say that Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. And in a certain sense, we could say, "What's the, he's true God and true man. He's divine and he's human. What it means to be God, what's in the nature of God, it's like what's essential and necessary to be God, all-knowing, eternal, spiritual, everything. That's the nature, divine nature. Human nature is what we all share. Again, with nature, you can't like, oh, here's human nature. You, you sort of use your intellect to derive what is human nature? What are those characteristics, those qualities that we as humans share? And so the divine nature are those qualities that are in God. And it's divinity, Father, Son, Spirit. And so all those qualities of being human, qualities of being divine, are present in Jesus. And we say that Christ in becoming man assumed our nature. 
It doesn't mean he destroyed it. It means by him becoming man takes humanity and its weakness, its fallenness, its imperfection, and perfects it. And the one person, Jesus, the one person, Jesus, by him taking in the human nature, we're all affected because we all share the same human nature. And so the, 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 the followers of the church and the theologians will say, God became man, assumed human nature, so that man could become like God. So that's the whole point. We're going to get to that later. The whole point is that we share in God's divine nature. That's why he did it. He didn't do it for funsies. He did it for a purpose. And that purpose so that we could share in his divine nature. And so Jesus Christ in the incarnation, the Savior, the Lord, is both fully human and fully divine. As I said earlier, in all those early church councils, that's what they all thought about. Either Jesus is not fully human or not fully divine. But this is where maybe it gets a little difficult. Gave you a big word. How can we say that Jesus, the Son of God, is both human and divine? What's the term? Well, this is going to be probably a all the, the $2 words that you get during the course, probably one of the biggest ones. Hypostatic union. Of course, couldn't make it an easy word. Had to do that. It's a big word. What is hypostatic union? You don't normally use the word hypostatic in daily language. Hypostatic is from the Greek word hypostasis which basically would translate sort of his person. So, the two natures of human and divine, the hypostatic union is what unites them. This terminology. So, you have two natures, but the hypostatic union means there is one person. Right. This is where it gets confusing, because we're not used to using these words. A person is basically, like you have the divine nature, the human nature, a person is nature sort of put together in one individual, who's rational, who is able to make choices. It's what unifies and sort of solidifies our individuality. So everyone here shares the same nature, our human nature, but each of us are in a certain sense an hypostasis, a singular individual manifestation of humanity. We share all the same characteristics. We're individuals in the same way as you have in the Trinity. They all share the same human, the divine nature, but they're all individual manifestations, persons of that divine nature. And so just like we all share a common humanity but are different, they all share a common divinity but are different. And it's the person, this is what's important, the person who has an intellect and a will. 
the ability to know and the ability to choose. Intellect is the will to know and to choose. The nature doesn't. Human nature, in and of itself, or divine nature, doesn't have the ability to know or to choose. In a certain sense, nature describes what something is. Now, granted, part of human nature means you have the ability to choose, and you have the ability to know, but human nature, or divine nature, can't do those things. Only persons can. And so, in Jesus, you have two natures, but they're unified in one person that controls, in a certain sense, and unifies both of those natures. And so this is the trick that we used to, to, to say or play around in theology when we were studying in the seminary. Jesus is truly human, which means he has an intellect, a will, a body, a soul, a human nature, but Jesus is not a human person. He's a human being. He's not a human person. Why would we say that? His substance is not of humanity. Oh, it is. He's truly human. I mean, like in a substantial manner, like, like the core of him not being human but divine. The core of him is human. The core of him is human. You're, you're looking for a different word, Matthew. Can anyone else give me, take, he's, he's on the right path. What is he trying to say? The unifying principle, the individuality, is the divine person of the Son of God. So this is a big thing. If two natures mean two persons, guess what Jesus is? He's like split personality. You got two persons, two operating in a certain sense, in two different ways. The two natures, both intellects and wills, are unified in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this is a mystery, and I do not expect you, after a year of Christology, to understand this, much less. Christology for Dummies, which is done in about 45 minutes or an hour. So the person, Jesus is the Son of God. His person, that divine person, is what unites the two natures. But when he acts, he acts as both God and man. Fully God and man. Which means what? In the person of, of the Son of God and Jesus, God become man, because he's fully God, guess what? He has a divine intellect. He can know things as God while he's a human being. He can also choose as God because God can make choices. He's fully God. But also as a man, he can know things in his brain with his human intellect. He can also choose things as man with his human nature.
but it's God guiding that human nature. It's the second person of the Trinity. So it's the mystery. When Jesus acts, he acts both as God and man. It doesn't mean he has two persons, but he has two intellects. He can know in one instant as God and as man. He can choose as God as his man. Even though these things are separate, in the unity of the hypostasis of the second part of the Trinity, they're unified. They're separate, but they work together. They're not intermingled. They're not commingled. They're separate, but they work together for the same person. But it's the person of the, of the second person of the Trinity who guides it. I'm not even going to ask if this makes sense because I know it does. <laughs> and the truth is, I'm a moral theologian. I'm not a Christologist. So I'm a little rusty today. But if you're going to sort of sum all this up, because God becomes man and acts as fully man, he transforms humanity and teaches us how to be human, how to act, how to live, how to love. From the inside, we are changed and redeemed. Not from the outside, but from the inside. It's a tremendous mystery, and that's what, oh, hey, he's the son of God, but he's also man. How do we understand that? And so we're literally talking centuries of arguing, fighting, debating, praying, beating each other up, cursing each other out. If you study the, the history of the early church, it wasn't always very pretty. But the Spirit worked through all that to guide us to this deep understanding that even I, preached now for 18 years, don't fully understand, because there's a mystery to it. And this is part of what we were talking about, this idea that, yeah, our reason can understand things, but there comes a point when we have to encounter a mystery that our human intellect is not going to fully understand it. Not going to fully understand how he can be both God and man. How he can have two intellects and two wills and act in the same way. But this is what I, I, I always enjoy this, and I, I want to throw this out. And this was a big debate in the 20th century, even though it's generally been resolved. And maybe it can kind of help us understand this mystery a little bit better, or it could confuse us even more than we're already confused. So in a few weeks, we are going to talk about what life is like in heaven. We believe that when we get to heaven, we will have what is called the beatific vision. You hear us pray about, pray about that at Mass. Beatific vision means blessed. It gives blessedness. Vision, or the eyes, the body, eventually into the soul, we will see God. And in seeing God, we will come to have knowledge from that sight. The truth is, it's almost like we're the small computer, he's the big computer. We're going to be plugged in. Our human mind into this divine nature of seeing him. There's no way that we can, God can fully Put himself in our mind, we can fully understand him, and even more, we can't fully communicate. But in our human intellect, we have the capacity 
to see and to know God, and in knowing God and seeing God, see everything else in the way that he sees it and knows it. That's so when we say we're in heaven, we won't need faith, because faith is things that are not seen. We are going to see God, and we will know who he is, and we're going to see everything through him. So, this is the question. While on earth, in his human intellect, did Jesus have the beatific vision? So again, in his, his divine intellect, oh yeah, I know I'm God, I'm thinking like God, and his, human will, his divine will, I'm acting like God. Then his human intellect, he can know things, he learned things as human. And in a certain sense, his divine nature permitted that. He chooses things as human. But the question is, on earth, did Jesus have the beatific vision? Something that we get in heaven. That means, even though he couldn't communicate it, constantly in his human intellect, he saw God's face. He saw the Father. The tradition of the church has always been generally yes. From the moment of his conception and his human nature, with his human intellect, he was able to see God's face. He was blessed because of that. That knowledge was there. But the question came up, though, well, what about Jesus on the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That it seems that Jesus struggled to perceive and believe in God the Father. And so the argument essentially was well, that Jesus could not have had the beatific vision because that he wouldn't have said that. He couldn't have really suffered on the cross. He couldn't have experienced that darkness because he had the beatific vision. And so that led a lot of people to say, oh, Jesus didn't ever have the beatific vision, which meant what? Jesus had faith. Jesus had faith. Some said, well, okay, well, his, his divine will made it so that his human intellect couldn't see it. That's possible. So that brings up this question, did Jesus, in his human nature, have faith? Did he not see God face to face? And so this was a big debate, but at the end of the last century, I think fairly it was kind of resolved. If Jesus had faith, guess what? When he died for you on the cross, he died for you as a soldier dying for his country. So, oh, he died for our country. He didn't know you, he didn't know me. But we believe that when Jesus was on the cross, not only in his divine intellect, but in his human intellect, because he had to act through that humanity to save us, we'll see, he saw each and every one of us. But if he had faith, he couldn't do that. He had to have the vision. And so, if we posit that Christ did not have faith, that in his human mind he saw God face to face, how could he suffer? And that's a great mystery, but John Paul II refers back to St. Therese and a lot of the saints who were so close to God but went through that dark night of the soul. And somehow, as we get closer, things get darker. It's like a light being put right in your face. You're blinded. Other people see how holy you are and how lit up you are, but you can't see it. So it's a mystery we won't understand, but as fun as it is to 
what seminarians do for fun. <laughs> Let's sit around and talk about this. That's what we do for fun. It helps us to understand, at least, or maybe it confuses more, the reality that Jesus had a human intellect and a human will. A, hu a divine intellect and divine will. They all operated under that one prosopone, that hypostasis, the second person of the Trinity. So when he acted, he acted as God and as man. And because of that, he was able to redeem us in a way that we simply couldn't. Is Jesus a human person, a divine person, neither, or both? Jesus is only a divine person. He is not a human person, nor is he both, because if he was a human person, the divine nature wouldn't be guiding everything. The divine wouldn't be in charge, let's put it that way. If he was both, he'd be split personality. At the moment of his incarnation, no, wait, at the moment of his, well, conception was really incarnation, technically, um, would Jesus have known that he was God and the Messiah? Uh, well, that's a different question, which we're not necessarily going to get into now. That would be RCA part two. <laughs> what was Jesus' self-knowledge? How did he know himself? And that is because we knew in his humanity he could grow in knowledge. In his divine nature, yeah, he'd have known that in his divine intellect. But did he know it immediately the moment in his human intellect? Well, if he had the deific vision, yeah, he, he did, because he would have all seen things. However, then how could Jesus have grown in knowledge? I'm not trying to like leave you like it's like the, the, the Empire Strikes Back. I'm just like a cliffhanger. You know, what's going to happen? You know, what, what happened to Luke? Uh, I'm not going to make this a cliffhanger. I just simply can't get into all those things today. But they are valid theological questions. And this is why people get theology degrees. There's enough study for stuff for us to study to, to, for, the, for the rest of our lives on Earth, and we're never going to fully understand it. But what the point is, though, is we talked about Christ's life, and we're going to get into this a little bit more after our break, is that Jesus, remember, after he resurrected, had his human body, and he ascended into heaven. He still has his body there. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. With the incarnation, the body entered theology through the front door. By him taking up body and soul, because Jesus had a soul. Jesus had a human soul. He redeems us from within and basically says, the body is good, creation is good, so the soul is good, your intellect is good. Everything about being a human is good. Jesus never sinned, we know that. But he redeemed us and changed us from within, and he still has his glorified body. So, I mean, I, I tell this story. When I was younger in high school or college, I, I, I taught catechism. And I remember there was this video. No, I didn't really, I wasn't super studying theology at the time. And there was this video, so this has been in the early 90s, from, I guess it was the 70s. And it was this really creepy, weird video where you had these three dudes in these body suits. Like, you know, no face. And they were hanging out. And so the kids are supposed to, oh, this is the Trinity. Well, all of a sudden, one of them, I think, became like an ant or something. Oh, the second person becoming a man. So the ant's walking around, 
So the other ants come and kill him, and then, oh, that's Jesus died. And then all of a sudden, you see the ant again, but the next scene, he's back to the big human person, the big, weird guy in a costume. And they showed the film, and I said, kids, guess what? You just saw heresy. <laughs> I don't even fully explain it, but what should have happened is the ant should have gone up. And it should be the ants hanging out with the two dudes in the costumes. Because the way that video explains it is, Christ shed his humanity. He shed his body, no. And so think of it. God is not claustrophobic. You know, he becomes human. Now, he still remains fully God. He doesn't become less God because he became man. And that was the thing. They would say, well, oh, the early church, well, he's not fully God. Because if he was fully God, sometimes he couldn't be man. There was all this debating back and forth. But we've got to understand that God became man in order to save us, and that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's an article of faith. There's great mysteries. Probably should have had some aspirin for your headache that you're going to get here. And there are books that you can read if you're interested about this. I really do think that the catechism, the section of the catechism, which, I, again, I always encourage us to read, and when you go to the website, I, if there are relevant passages, I'm going to put it on there, read these passages. But the catechism, in about two or three pages, gives all of this, not only quotes the heresies, but I think also sort of quotes some of these councils. But you'll, you'll see the first seven ecumenical councils where all of this is fleshed out. Now, of course, we don't talk about that anymore. No one wants to study the seven ecumenical councils, but that's important that we have the tradition and work these problems out using human reason, but also faith is infallible things. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a break five minutes to contemplate these mysteries and to come back and look at the mission of the second person of the Trinity who came to save us from sin. Well, what I'm trying to do is condense some of this a little bit so that uh, the RSAC candidates have more time to share uh, instead of me kind of talking the whole entire time. Um, but, but I basically... Katie was, was mentioning, as long as you understand one person, two natures, you're good to go. Read the section of the Catechism, it's all you ever need to know in Christology. But I, really, what I like about this, and what I like about theology, is most, or not most, many Christians and Catholics never think about what they believe. They just believe. Oh, Jesus or not. And never bother to think about it. But then again, most people, not most, many people, go through life not thinking about anything except what's on Netflix. <laughs> but to engage in trying to answer the deep questions or talk about these mysteries, this is the, li that's the life of the mind, life of the intellect, which is valuable. And what happens is, is you don't think about these things and pray about these things True theology is done on your knees. If you're not praying, you're not going to fully understand this. Jesus has become, this is just some abstract study. But if you're praying, it becomes something very serious and you get insight and wisdom 
to be able to grasp and understand this. But a lot of people just don't do it. And as a result, there comes a question or whatever, and people don't even know to think about it. I don't, I don't know. For most questions, people don't know. So what, what then, keying about this, we're going to move. So this is Jesus' person, person of Christ. So in a certain sense, everything there sums up the word Jesus. God saves two natures, divine person. But the second, the word Christ, is to come as the Messiah or the Savior. That's what we're talking about, the mission of the Son. So the word means mission means to be sent. And this is, you know, everybody in our organization has a mission statement. No, not really. You say it. It's really not. You don't send yourself. Someone else sends you. So the mission of the Son is, is to do something specific. And he was sent by the Father. For all eternity, he willed, he agreed, yes, we will go. In order to do what? In order to save mankind. And so, again, I talked a little bit about this earlier on, about the question of the original sin. How did sin and spiritual death, at least, enter into the world? We can conjecture that there was some primordial act. But the state that we find ourselves in, the world in, is one where there is sin, there's death, there's destruction. But there's a word that we, we banter about, or we throw around a lot, but we don't often talk about what it means as the word grace. Traditional Catholic theology says, because of original sin, we were born not in the state of grace. So what is grace? Well, there's a whole theology of grace. But I'm going to say grace basically means the word gift. This is going to sound crazy, but we probably shouldn't say what is grace, but who is grace. Grace isn't necessarily a thing, but grace ultimately means, even though it is more complicated than this, that you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, Trinity, dwelling in your soul. So what the state of mankind is now as a result of original sin, as a result of the fall, whatever that is, when we're born into the world, we are not born in the state of grace. Grace basically meaning union with God. The Father, Son, and Spirit dwells in our soul. Remember we talked about original sin, broken relationships. What broke that relationship in general, because we're all born with this tendency towards sin called concupiscence, what, what broke that relationship and what continues in a certain sense to break the relationship, it's sin. And as a result, sin leads to death. And yeah, the dinosaurs died before humans came. There was death before. I want to get into all that. It's at least spiritual death. The spiritual death of the soul, that when we willfully commit sin, we 
cut ourselves off from relationship with God, we lose that grace and that ability to operate in the Spirit, if we die in that state, there's a good chance, because we're not in union with God, particularly we do not want to be in union with God, we will not have the beatific vision. Again, we're going to get into this a little bit later on. But you had the state that I think Heather probably talked to you about, I haven't listened to her lesson yet, where, hey, we got a problem. There's no grace, there's sin, there's fighting, there's arguing, and there's broken relationship. The Trinity, for all eternity, knew this was going to happen and probably could have said, I'm going to set my finger and fix it all. Or I'm going to start over again. But in, in that divine intellect, which is so different than I like, said, hey, guess what? I'm going to become a man, human, and to save them from being stupid. Save them from their sin. So you would understand this is the mystery that God in his intellect, we're going to talk about, can know everything, even before it happens. And this plan to save us, this, to send the Son, this mission, always existed. Now, this gives me a chance to sort of tie in something that we really haven't discussed, that we're not going to discuss for long, that come up later, is how many types of person do we as Christians believe exist? There's divine person, there are three of them. There's the human person, there's as many persons as there are humans. What's the third type? Angelic. Angelic person. So through scripture and through tradition, we believe that before God created the physical universe, the great man, he created these pure spiritual creatures which we're going to call angels. They do not have a body. But they have an intellect and a free will, although they choose and know at a much higher level than we do. The story goes that God said, all right, angels, i got to give you a little test. Here's my plan. I'm going to become... Look at these stupid humans. I saw, I saw a little funny joke. A complete waste of a good monkey. <laughs> These humans messing everything up. I'm going to go save them, and I'm going to go and redeem them. What do you think of that? And some of the angels, and again, this is the thing. The angels don't think about things like we do. Immediately, some of them said, that's a bunch of crap. Look how stupid these humans are, and you're going to become one of them? You should become one of us, or whatever else. So they rebelled. And so there are a certain set of these, 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 these beings that left, that out of their free will cut themselves off from God, and we call these the demons. And so this demonic, these personal forces, not just evil, they're personal forces, are out to bring us into their misery. And so when we talk about Christ's mission to save, you've got to understand that they're not just in this drama. That's what I, like. I always like to use it. This drama of salvation. Christ is the protagonist. We all play parts. Some of us have bigger parts than others. But they're antagonists too. They're villains. 
And those are the demons. There's not just some sort of a, a fog that comes in off the stage right. They're persons. And so ultimately, we can say that the drama is a love story, which we talked about, God's love, this desire to unify himself. But it's also a war movie, a war story. There's a fight, there's a battle. Jesus is the commander. And so we are in this middle of the spiritual warfare, which again, what we might discuss a little bit later on when we get to the spirituality. So in the drama, the plan is to win this war, to, to save humanity from sin, which we cause ourselves. God is going to come to man, man and he is going to die. Again, I would have written the play, I'd have done it totally different. But I didn't write the play. He came in order to die, to shed his blood. It led to the cross. So there's no question that Jesus, that the, if we're going to put the blame on anyone, it's all of our faults because we've all sinned. We all need to be redeemed. It's not the Jews' fault. There's a tradition sometimes people like to blame the Jews. No. Did certain individual Jewish people have a part to play in the physical death of Jesus? Yes. But what really led Jesus to the cross? It was our sin. So Christ came to die on the cross. It's all part of God's plan. If you read the catechism, it's going to explain that. Why it was part of God's plan, I don't know. But he began setting everything up. That in his death, he was going to save us from sin and establish a new covenant. I know y'all talked about that. But so there were all these little symbols that were set up to lead to that. And so the symbol, the main symbol that scripture pulls up was the animal, specifically the lamb, that was slaughtered, that shed the blood in the Old Testament in order to save Egypt, uh, the Jew Israel from Egypt, take them out of bondage. And so this image is subsumed where Jesus is the lamb who is innocent, who takes on the sins of the world, kind of like a scapegoat, if you will, who is slaughtered, who sheds his blood, but it's not animal blood. It's not human blood. It is human blood. It's not animal blood. But it's human blood that's infused, united with the divine. That blood has the power to save. Not all the different animals that were slaughtered before. And because of that, that was a sacrifice to the Father. And so I'm going to be honest with y'all. This is what I think, besides the sacred talk about words that the human mind doesn't understand, but if you, not the, human, the modern mind doesn't understand, but if you don't understand it, you're not going to understand the faith. If you don't understand and believe that there are certain persons, places, and things that are sacred, none of this will make sense. But if you don't understand the nature of sacrifice, none of this will make sense. Because we live in a cult, but primitive cultures, remember what they would do, oh, God's mad at us. Let's go slaughter this animal, or let's go slaughter this person. And the blood is somehow going to satiate the anger of the gods. 
that is not necessarily what the Jews believed, but this idea of sacrifice was there. We were going to sacrifice the animal, and the Lord and the God would take it. We know that doesn't absolve sin, but Jesus came to sacrifice his life. He freely chose to do it. So if you do not understand the nature of sacrifice, the offering of a victim to God in order to wipe away sin, if you think, ah, this is all baloney, it's all primitive, then the heart of our redemption falls apart. I, again, I would have done it differently, I'm telling you. But God's plan was he's going to help everybody understand what sacrifice is, and then he's going to become man, he's going to die on the cross, shed his blood, and through that blood, and through his choice to die, we will find redemption, salvation. So in this God's plan, only the divine blood saves us from sin. That's, that's how it works. I don't understand it. It's a mystery. That's what it was. That's how we were saved from sin. The father saw the sacrifice of the son and said, I accept that sacrifice. And how do we know that the father accepted the sacrifice of the son? The resurrection. He, the rising of the third day. All of the Trinity played a part in that. I accept your sacrifice. And so now because of that, we believe that humankind is redeemed from sin. It's a mystery. Well, how is that applied to us? We're going to talk about that. The, 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 what the grace is, the, what Christ won on the cross for sacrifice. We're able to share in that through baptism. It's baptism that restores us to grace. So in a certain sense, you have Jesus doing it, but it's going to be applied through the sacraments. and become channels of grace of God's life. So... This is, if you read the catechism, the heart of it. I mean, they're going to use words like salvation, atonement, redemption, and they all have different meanings, but it's basically, we were broken because of sin, our own fault, cut off from God, God came, became man, shed his blood through a sacrifice, only one sacrifice that still produces fruit today, and we're able to find salvation from sin. Now, this though, if you think about it, is, I really think, a rough passage and probably the great mystery. And it comes from the first letter of John chapter four. We all know it. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be expiation for our sins. That is a great mystery. What was the thing that drove the mission of the Son? It was the love of the Father, the love of the Trinity. That doesn't sound like very loving. Hey, I love you, and I love you all, so I want you to get slaughtered. How does that manifest God's love? And that's a great mystery. But the idea is, we can look 
again, it is a great mission. We could look at love, and what's the greater manifestation of love in our minds? Is it a man and a woman on their honeymoon? That's a wonderful manifestation of love. Or is it the person dying for their person they care for? That's, that clearly is. And so it is shocking, but it's real. He loves us that much that he's willing to die for us. It is not, and I think this is what we say that it was necessary, but it really wasn't. And I don't mean to contradict tradition, but he didn't have to go to that length. I remember studying, you know, when I was in catechisms. God could have stubbed his toe. That would have been enough. But he wanted to go to the extremes. And if you really look at what the crucifix looks like, that's the extremes to say, this is what I'm willing to go through because I love you. I'm willing to suffer this much. And again, that's the real, if you're willing to suffer someone, it shows that you love them. And people we don't love, eh, I'm going to be nice to you, but I'm not going to suffer for you. Unless you're crazy. Or maybe you're a saint. I mean, that's also another possibility. <laughs> but the son, though, offers his life to the father. And this is something that I want to really make as a crucial point. What animates the life of Jesus, if you read scripture, talked about it a little bit, but really if you understand the mission of the Son is his relationship to the Father. Jesus was always praying, always talking about the Father. His identity as Son was grounded, we believe theologically, in the relation to the Father. So everything that he did, he did to give glory to the Father, even though he was at the same nature as the Father. They're both God. So Christ's sacrifice, yes, was for us, but he offered his life to the Father. And again, the Spirit's there. We're going to talk more about the Spirit. We're going to talk about the Trinity and, and whatnot, the sinning in the Spirit, the mission of the Spirit in the world. And so... Christ, yes, in his life, gives us an example of what we should be living. We should emulate him and being moral and teaching. But he's more than a prophet. We are called to live in union with Christ through our baptism. Which means what? We become adopted sons of God. We're able to share in that divine nature, which means that this is always something that maybe you don't think about. What, what does the priest say in that little embolism before they are father? In the words that Jesus taught us, we dare to say, audemus dicere. Why would you dare to say that? It's pretty bold. Hey God, you're my father. You're not some distant God because your son Jesus died on the cross offered that sacrifice, rose it from the dead, I'm baptized because of my union with him. When God sees the Son, he's all of us subsumed in the Son. We find redemption. We become adopted sons and daughters of God. We can call him the Father. So that relationship to Christ, yes, 
but that relationship with the Father is what really anchors us in our identity. And this is what it's all about. Because because of sin, we were cut off from God. Because of Christ, he's that bridge, that mediator, where we can call God the Father, but we can be with him for all eternity. Without the blood, the sacrifice of the Son, without fulfilling that mission, that doesn't happen. We're locked out of heaven, however you want to see it. But here... Something I didn't know tonight about the beatific vision or whatever kind of makes me think that so if, he ha- if Jesus had that and so he knew his mission was to go to the cross and he was constantly in intercession with the Father and mm-hmm. there was this love, mm-hmm. then it's not like, oh, he wants me to sacrifice my life. And so it makes us be drawn to the Father if Jesus knew what he was going to do and still was drawn to the Father, instead of like bad cop, good cop, like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna soften mm-hmm. God's wrath. It, mm-hmm. It's not like that. So it makes you want to relate to the Father. It is. And, and this is, that's, 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 look, that's brilliant insight right there. That's what we're talking about, understanding theology. In the Old Testament, the wrathful God, to a great degree, is how Israel perceived God. There wasn't the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. It's two separate gods. It wasn't like God one day woke up and, you know, he started taking his antidepressants and he wasn't in a bad mood. <laughs> he's always been the loving God. They perceived him as the wrathful God. But he's the God of love who sent his son. And the son knew him as love. And so, yeah, it's a great mystery, but love animated it. The Father sent the Son to save us so that we could become sons and daughters. So if you understand, without love, he is that wrathful God out there to seek vengeance. I'm mad at you, because the wrathful God would have killed all of us. That's what I would have done. But you know, but, but no, he's like, I'm mad at y'all, but, but just like a father, I love you, so I'm going to take your punishment for you. I'm going to do it for you. So yeah, there is pu- there's punishment there. Fathers punish. There, there, there's, there's a dark side to it. But it's not out of vengeance or wrath. And so that's what we're going to talk about more next time is that concept of God as a father. One of the reasons we have a difficult time doing that because we've never experienced a father who loved us or was willing to sacrifice. Jesus did, even in his humanity. So yeah, if you know the father loves you, even though there's darkness and struggles, you're going to be able to push through. So it's a way to understand. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And that's what we're going to get into more. I mean, but it's essential to realize that this is not done out of vengeance, but out of love and animated by love. And when you insert that, that God loves us and, and we are called to be his sons and daughters, everything changes. But you got to believe that love is at the heart of it. And that's what Jesus came to show. God is love. But the way love manifests in the world is often the exact opposite of what we would expect. If you came, I love y'all, everybody gets a flower. <laughs> no, the true love, the shocking is love manifested in a willingness to sacrifice even that. Again, if we talk about the masses of sacrifice and all that, we'll be able to discuss it more. But we've got to believe, not in primitive visions of sacrifices, we are not out here to 
sacrifice some goats or lambs or anything, and that's over. Now we have bloodless sacrifice, which is the Eucharist. And so all of this, today's lesson and yesterday's lesson, if we believe this, which is a radical proposition, that A, God cares about us, that's probably the biggest radical proposition in a world we believe is guided by natural selection with no God, heartless, cruel, red in teeth and claw. The God loves us. He loves us so much that he became man. That's the way I like to explain it to the kids. It's like, you love your dog, are you willing to become your dog if he's acting bad? Most kids will. <laughs> well, okay, but in order to save your dogs, you're willing to die. A fewer percentage will. Hey, you love your dog, your dog's as much you're willing to become the alpo. No, no kid. That's always one kid will do that. <laughs> but that's the incarnation. He's willing to become one of us. It's a radical proposition. Do you love your dog so much that you're willing to stay as a human and become a dog? Few people will. But then he goes through the suffering. He's risen from the dead, which most how you believe that, and it's still a human body. I actually think that's probably the most difficult part. It's very easy for God, there are of God comes and does all these things and sheds his humanity. The most difficult part is he keeps his humanity. If we really believe that, and it takes faith, I mean, we can use our intellect, there's faith here. We cannot see, we can't fully understand, we need faith. And guess what? Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is the center of it all. And that's what we talked about last week. Christianity is not about following laws, but about following a person who is still alive. And so a great degree, the rest of what we're going to do once we finish the creed, we're going to look at sacraments, morality, and prayer, are ways, the three primary ways that we encounter Jesus. We encounter the living Christ through the sacraments, through our moral life, and through prayer and the liturgy, and, and we're going to look at it, all of that. So it's the person of Jesus. Does it take a lot to believe this? Yes. But for those of you particularly who um, are new to this, Catholicism and coming here, we didn't make this up yesterday. <laughs> It wasn't a couple of guys over a beer saying, ah, oh, that's a great idea. And, and this is something that, and I don't, I'm going to wrap up here, don't mean to be critical, that, yeah, essentially, we don't have to have this deep theological knowledge. We can have the experience of Christ. And we know that he's real and he saved us in the blood of the Lamb. And the reality, we are humans and we have intellects and that it is valuable for us to know and defend things. And I think one of the struggles is why some people may be hesitant to become Catholic. I gotta think too much to become Catholic. Well, yeah, you gotta think a lot. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need to be Albert Einstein. But we believe that your intellect is part of you being in the image and likeness of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. 
and that you have the capacity to understand some of this. And that y'all have to go through nine months to become Catholic. It used to be, what, three years in the early church? Two or three? It was long. You had to really mean it. And then they'd probably kill you if you were doing it. I mean, I'd kill you now. But you at least have a modicum of knowledge for your own good, but also to be able to share it with others. And so I really applaud those who are like, say, I'm going to spend my afternoon here doing all of this. I gave you all tables so you could write, too. You can lean over, but sure it's not hurt you behind. And that this is what it's about. If this all is really true, man, we should want to know about this. We should want to learn about this. It shouldn't be just enough to say, ah, it's like if you really love the saints, you're going to want to know about the saints and learn about the saints. You don't really care about the saints. Eh, I don't know the game. I don't really care. I don't know the players. So the same with the faith. If you really love Jesus and you believe all this, you're going to want to know about it. Otherwise, eh, I'll just show up on Sunday. I'll wear the jersey, but I'm not going to be really a devoted fan. And so next week we're going to talk about the Trinity. Because we believe that Christ offered his life to the Father but he also came to reveal the Father. He came to tell us about who the Father was and to give us the Holy Spirit. So if you thought, this is confusing, <laughs> next week's even more. However, there are fun diagrams and pictures <laughs> that make it a lot easier to understand one nature, three persons. Now, some might have said, hey, I should have done that before talked about the Trinity today, then talked about Jesus. I chose to do it the opposite way, even the opposite way that the Catechism does it. The Catechism deals with the nature of God first. You can talk a little bit about that. Is because that principle of revelation. You are not going to understand the Trinity before Jesus. There was no, the Trinity was there. You need Jesus because Jesus reveals the Father, reveals the Trinity. I think, I'm not trying to criticize the catechism, that in order to fully understand the Father, because Christ is the icon of the Father, when you see Jesus, you see the Father. You've got to know Jesus first, who lives with the Father and pours out the Spirit on us. So, look at that. Oh, I'm proud of it. 725. <laughs> so we really, we want to give people the opportunity. Did you mention about the Mass next Thursday? Okay, yeah, so... One of the things that as we, uh, let's close the glory be and then I'm going to turn this off and we'll talk. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, or without end. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.